Amen. How are we doing? The uh, springing forward kind of causes this. Kind of quiet and a little sparse today, but I'm glad you all are here. Um, you know, a few weeks back when I, when I got up to preach, I was just saying like, man, this was, it, was a, it was a tough week and I feel like I just need to like crawl up into the pulpit that time. Not so much the case today. I'm feeling a little bit more peppy, ironically. I don't know why. Because um, I do wish I was on the beach somewhere. But regardless, I'm just, I've seen a lot of cool stuff happen this week. Our, our team made it to Brazil, which is awesome. Um, they, were, they were super nervous. If you didn't hear uh, last week, they may not. They were, they were at risk of losing their, their visas. They got denied. They had to go up. But anyways, um, I'm just going to pray real quick for them because that's just an awesome, awesome thing. Um, and they get to go down there. Uh, so if you all bow your heads with me, we're going to pray for them in that trip. Uh, Father God, thank you so much just for, um, for your love and your grace, Lord, that we all get to come together to worship you. Um, I pray that you would be with the team down in Brazil this week and that your gospel would go forth, that you would use them to uh, both encourage uh, the Restore Brazil guys and also to be encouraged themselves. I pray that you uh, would keep them, uh, keep them safe, Lord, and just ask, though, that you would be glorified uh, and that they would see the amazing things that you're doing um, outside of the context here of uh, Bloomington and just our country and that, uh, and that you're working around this world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so have you ever not understood or not seen something and that answer or thing is right in front of you the whole time. And then you realize that you are just simply amazed and you see things super clearly. I think we do this a lot when we look back on our lives retrospectively. You know, they say, hey, hindsight is always twenty twenty. When you're young, you begin to gain a little more knowledge and you understand some things and you're, you uh, start to feel like you're pretty special. Like maybe you have a good pulse on everything and then somebody older and wiser comes along and says hey man, you should do this, insert whatever you like, or you should approach it this way because it's going to lead you somewhere better than the path that you're going down. Then you fail because you think that you've got it figured out and the pattern continues until you finally go, wow, that, that person was right. And if I just understood that and listened to that advice and acted accordingly, I would have been in a better place a long time ago. Today, as we pick up in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that the disciples of Jesus went through something very similar. They had repeated, repeated chances to see Jesus for, for who he really was and respond accordingly, but they struggled. And after, after they finally broke through to what was in front of them the whole time, they would be changed forever. The disciples were going to be confronted with the reality who Jesus really was. And this was going to set the tone for the rest of their lives. It sets the tone for the rest of the gospel of Mark. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to be continuing on. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. That should be on page 844 of uh, the Bibles in your row there, if you don't have a Bible. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said, Do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And he told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, again, we're just in awe that we get to come come and gather together, Lord, as um, a community that has been saved by your grace, Lord. Uh, and I just ask that as we work through, um, work through this passage today, that uh, you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring truth to our lives, that you would change our hearts, Lord, um, and that you would help us to see you more clearly, Lord, that you would help us to see the work that you're doing uh, in us and through us in this city and around the world, Lord. And we just thank you so much for Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, Lord. Um, And we praise you for your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, have a seat. All right, so before we uh, hop in today, i kind of like to give us a clear understanding of where we're going I only got two points. I'm breaking the mold. I'm not doing the three-point thing today. I just got two, so I'm not promising that that's going to keep us here or make it be any shorter. But anyways, first we're going to, we're going to see how Jesus reveals himself to people, uh, and we're going to make some observations from the healing of the blind, and then we're going to examine the greatest question that the disciples are faced with and how this impacts us today. So as a quick recap, last week we were talking about the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus saw that there was this great crowd that had been following him, and he had compassion on them because they had been traveling with him for three days and had nothing to eat. And the disciples responded, well, how are we going to feed the people in this desolate place? Jesus proceeds to ask, well, how many loaves of bread do you have? Which was seven, and he takes the bread and the fish, and he gives thanks, and everybody ate, and they were satisfied. Then immediately they got into the boat and they go to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and of course they wanted a sign, right? And Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit, Mark says. He's like, you're not going to get any sign. So they get back into the boat and it says that they forgot the bread except they had one loaf with them. So Jesus proceeds to start cautioning the disciples about the evil teaching of the Pharisees on one hand and the dangers of Herod on the other and his disciples paying no mind to what Jesus is talking about. Start discussing the fact that they have no bread. Jesus had just finished feeding thousands and thousands of people and they were still worried that they were going to go hungry. Jesus proceeds to ask a handful of questions Understandably frustrated, I think he asks seven in a row, finishing with, do you not yet understand? So the disciples have seen miracle after miracle, and they still are worried about the fact that they have no bread. So that's where we're at now in this text, as they came to Bethsaida. This is where Jesus uses something to reveal himself to his disciples for who he really is. So we see that some of the people brought Jesus a blind man, Right? And they begged him to touch him. When something moves us, when we are uh, drawn to something or it influences us, we can't help but want to get more of it. 
If you've seen maybe like an amazing natural wonder, like if you've had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon, uh, maybe Niagara Falls now, I don't know, I've done the Maid of the Mist, and I would, it was kind of touristy for me. But anyways, it, <laughs> not to, never mind. If you've experienced something that brings you joy or fulfillment, you will inevitably want others to know about that. You're going to bring them to it. If you have a hobby or you like a sport or a game or you're passionate about something, you're going to bring it up or you're going to bring it to people. We all have something in our lives we want everyone to experience, especially if you perceive that someone is really missing out. I like coffee. This is a perfect example because today, when you lose an hour, you need more of it. So if you come to me and you're tired and you need a little refreshment, I'm going to show you my little friend, a 16-ounce cup of fresh, hot piping, black gold. And I'll tell you what, it will work for you. <laughs> I promise. The people had obviously seen something in Jesus that they wanted this blind man to experience. They had probably witnessed or at least had heard of the amazing healings that he performed. Because back in this day... Uh, being blind would put you in a, in a very, very tough spot. Um, there were not all the modern amenities I have, and, I, and don't hear me saying that, uh, that I'm trying to minimize the difficulties of, of that today. But back then, the lack of understanding about hygiene, unavailability of modern medicine that was uh, appropriate, exposure to elements left people blind, and there was really, really nothing they could do about it. But this man had friends who had a plan. They had an idea of how they were going to help out their friend, and I imagine that they had some expectations, probably, of how Jesus was going to work. But Jesus does something that is completely out of the ordinary, because up to this point, he was doing all of his miracles in front of everyone, except for the deaf man in, in chapter 7, where he takes the man aside from the crowd. But we read here that he takes the blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the village. This is not unintentional. Jesus brought the man out of town. On purpose, And I think that Jesus was getting tired of kind of what people were expecting of him, his disciples included, just assuming that he would heal right away. Whenever people would just get to him and touch him, that he would just, uh, just heal him. And I think this is a trap we still kind of fall into today. We settle into the thought that God is, uh, should or ought to be working in our lives in a certain way. We think if we just do the right things, you showed up on Sunday... Congratulations, if you read your Bible, then we, then we deserve something. We deserve to be healed. And I'm not just talking about physical healing, I'm talking about all areas of life. We want Jesus for what he brings and what we get out of him, but he wants us to see something so much more. And we're going to get to that here just in a second. So he takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. This is, uh, that's an intimate act. I, I hope you don't just walk around grabbing people by the hand. Um, if you do, that's going to be an issue. But I would assume that as soon as Jesus touched the man, people were like, oh my gosh, he's going to be healed. But that's not what happened. Not just yet. Jesus grabs him by the hand, walks him out, and then he spits in his eyes. I know that sounds a little weird to us, but a few weeks back we learned that uh, the application of spittle is like, the technical term, the application of spittle was regarded as an important curative force in Judaism and the Hellenistic culture. So Jesus was entering into that world of this man 
in establishing contact with him in a way that he would understand. And he lays his hands on him, and he asks, do you see anything? And the man replies, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So I think we can infer from this that the man probably was not born blind because he did have an idea of what trees were and what men looked like. So Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, and the man opens his eyes, and his sight is restored. But not just restored, he sees clearly. So I don't know if you, anybody who wears contacts, but like the first time that you put your contacts in, what's the first thing that you notice? You can talk back. Leaves. Yes, you notice the leaves, right? This is kind of what, this is kind of the analogy here. Like you can, you can see things, right? But when you put those contacts in, I mean, you see clearly. Can you imagine what this man have, could have felt at this time? The excitement that must have just been pulsing through him as he got healed more and more and more until he saw clearly? God chose to reveal himself to this man in phases. Essentially, what I believe is important to pull out of this at this point is to understand that God reveals himself to bring glory to himself. The disciples had long been missing the point Long been missing the point of who he was. And as soon as the people thought they'd figured him out, he decides to heal slowly instead of quickly. That can be frustrating because we don't like to wait. It seems like we are all waiting on something. Maybe it's a spouse, the right job to come around, your problems to be taken away, etc., etc. Being unsatisfied is kind of common. We are conditioned in this culture, to get what we want, when we want it. We're conditioned that we deserve the best, and when we don't get it, something must be wrong. In her book, Seasons of Waiting, by Betsy Childs Howard, uh, she quotes Andrew Murray and says this, At our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, the heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. We are seeking gifts. He, the giver, longs to give himself and to satisfy the soul with his goodness. It is just for this reason that he often withholds the gifts and that the time of waiting is made so long. He is constantly seeking to win the heart of his child for himself. And he goes on to explain that God wishes that we would not say, Oh, how good is God now that I've received this gift? But long before it comes... And even if it never comes, we should all the time be experiencing that he is the ultimate gift. In this light, waiting isn't so bad. It is just a time to enter into the goodness of God as he works in our waiting. Some of you can remember the moment when you believed in Jesus, and others, kind of like myself, uh, maybe had a slower process, and you see more and more, and then one day you're like, man, I see this clearly. The man moved from blindness to a little sight to clear sight. So why at this point, why now does God choose to heal this man in the two-phase process? To be honest, I do not have a perfect answer to this question, but I think based off of the immediate context that we have within the Gospel of Mark and staying in line with the goal of what Mark is trying to get across, I think we can make an educated guess. I believe Jesus was trying to give an objective lesson to his disciples. This was when and how he had decided to reveal himself. 
So as we recap, the disciples definitely had seen some of the miraculous works that Jesus had performed. Lots and lots of them. Marvelous things. But they didn't see clearly. Much like the blind man and the healing stages he went through, the disciples had yet to see very clearly. At some point, either in the midst of the miracle or soon after, they had some time to reflect on what happened. And the disciples began to understand who Jesus was. So we pick up in the second half here of this passage and we see that they are they're going north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, well, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So people thought, as we saw earlier in the gospel, that Jesus was actually somebody else. There was this conviction that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. If you remember, uh, Herod had killed John. In Mark 6.16 it says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, had been raised. So some thought he was John, or that he was the expected Elijah, prophesied in the, in the prophet Malachi. This was a very common viewpoint. A very common viewpoint and expectation in Judaism. Elijah, we read in 2 Kings, was brought up into heaven without dying. And people thought that he would return at the end of the age. And 2 Kings 2.11 says this, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah was taken up into heaven, and people thought uh, that he was going to be coming back. So they thought Jesus was Elijah. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he was, but that he was just this end times realization of some more recent or distant past event. And to view Jesus only as a prophet just assigned him the role of another preparatory individual who God spoke through. And it denies his role as the person who came to make salvation possible for those who would believe in him. But Jesus, an appointed, and I would imagine very intense manner says, but who do you say that I am? You think I'm John or Elijah or a prophet or a good teacher or a person that can perform miracles for you? Do you see me just as a tree walking or do you see clearly? Who do you say I am? And Peter, in what I consider to be one of the most glorious verses in this whole gospel, says, you are the Christ. And I like, I like the account that we see uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parallel account of this story. It says in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a huge statement. Peter is confessing that he sees Jesus clearly for who he is. The promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the promised Savior who was introduced in the third chapter of Genesis and was prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament. The fulfillment of God's promise, the third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a big turning point in this gospel. From here on out, Jesus sets his eyes and proclaims to his disciples what he came to accomplish. Because now they see he's the Christ, but they, you, you'll see next week, they already forget what he's here to do. 
He came to accomplish the salvation of the world by his death and resurrection on the cross. And yes, we are now just halfway through Mark. I know. We've been, uh, we've been working through it nice and slow. And that's good. But as I, I was studying this, I, I was hit with this realization, uh, a realization about how this is actually like the most important question that can be asked. I think it's clear that we live in a culture and context that gets this, gets this so this question wrong a lot of the time, and it's interesting how similarly we approach Jesus and, and even how I do. The predominant viewpoint is that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Right? You follow him, you're going to get some good tips on how to live your good life, some moral rules to follow. You'll probably stay out of trouble a little bit more. We view him as someone who just gets us what we want, eternal life, comfort, security. Is that who you think Jesus is? Is that who you say he is? Just an end-time conqueror who's going to bring you what you want? Another prophet, another good teacher? Jesus does not leave room for this. He has too many claims. Too many claims that don't leave room to pick and choose what we want about him. I'm excited for next week because Jesus is going to tell people, yeah, you want to follow me? You've got to take up your cross and follow me daily. We are promised trials and suffering and pain and tribulation, not just a life of ease, but somehow in the midst of all of that, we are promised joy unimaginable. John 15, 9 through 11 says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' Jesus's desire for you is that you would know him for who he really, really is. God wants you to glorify and find your enjoyment for who he is, and not because of just what he can bring you. That's what we see in the text. The disciples just keep missing it. The people keep missing it. But then the Holy Spirit softens their heart, and they see him for who he really is. Jesus is the one who was coming to conquer Satan, sin, and death. He did this ultimately, ultimately by living a perfect life that you can never live. Every single one of us, all of us have sinned. And we all cannot do enough good things to be seen as right in God's eyes. Jesus came to fulfill the righteous life you can't, die the death you deserve, and cleanse us from our sins. And three days later, he was resurrected. And now we live in that, you know, the already but not yet, this tension between like it's accomplished, but it's not fully consummated yet, we're still waiting And that's a gracious thing. You know, I struggle with that a little, and I have to think a lot about that. Um, But it's a gracious thing. Because now people have the opportunity to respond to the question that Jesus poses to the disciples. Who do you say I am? Some of you are here today, and you've been striving and striving to fill something inside of you that you just cannot fill. You seek comfort and power, security, You go after things that make you feel good, and we live 
as though life is just about happiness and fulfillment. And time goes on, and you'll see you will never, ever be fully satisfied. If you're a Christian in the room, maybe you can remember something that you used to to strive for, to feel purpose. Uh, For me, it was comfort, physical comfort. and, And I still struggle with this. But specifically, years ago, I... I want to feel good and I'll do whatever it takes to get there. It could have been working out or filling my body with any type of substances or maybe just trying to reduce stress in my life. I like to chill. <laughs> but, I mean, I can do that sinfully. I tried to, to get as much as possible without trying to do anything. And I never was satisfied, and I always woke up again just like, man, i got to get to that level of comfort once again. But when you finally realize that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much power, money, security you have, you always will get to the end of life, and you're going to leave it all. Only God can come in and fill that place, that hole in your heart. Once you reckon with who Jesus claims to be and put your trust and faith in him, submit to him as the Lord of your life and the Holy Spirit changes you, you will understand and you will see clearly. I'm guessing right now there's a lot of you in this room who are like, yes, yes, Jesse, we get this. We hear this every single week. And I think that as well. I do. But when I take a step back and I look at this passage... Within the context of Mark, I realize how much I forget. Just like the disciples, I am dull and forgetful. I am a sinner saved by grace through Jesus Christ, and I am sustained daily by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I still struggle with anxiety, fear of man, gluttony, lust, anger, you name it. I forget what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. I forget what he did, and I still worry about whether or not Jesus still really wants what's the best for me. I forget that I serve a community of people who will worship God in eternity, and I act as if it's just about putting on a program. i got to say that one more time, because this is something that has been, I've really been working on. I forget that I serve a community of people, we all serve one another, who are going to one day worship in eternity Jesus Christ, And I functionally act as if my job is reduced to making Sunday mornings happen. And putting on a couple programs so people can approve of me and say, oh man, we like this. We like your music. We like your preaching. We prefer Chris's, but I get that. (laughs) Whatever. That's what I reduce it to. I read scripture about loving my neighbor. I go out and I slander and I gossip. (laughs) Forget about those in society who we have pushed to the side. I have access to joy unimaginable. And I've been loved by God so I can be free from sinning and live a life that is all about glorifying him and not about trying to scrape by for a few years and live for me. I am so forgetful. I was reading a book this week called Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. Um, Great book. I recommend it. Subtitle says, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. Um, 
And I think it's really applicable for us today because we live in a day and an age and a context where, uh, where I think we struggle to see kind of God at work all of the time. And he says this in one part. This is an age where our sense of spiritual possibility, transcendence, and the presence of God has been drained out. It's left as a spiritual desert. Christians face the temptation to accept the dryness of that desert as the only possible world We have enough conviction and faith to be able to call ourselves believers, but we're compelled to look for ways to live out a Christian life without transcendence and without an active presence, the active presence of God. This unfortunately sounds very familiar to me. I struggle to see clearly, to see God's presence all the time because I get in the way of what God is trying to do. I read scripture and I still try to make it about me when the point is to see and savor the glory of God in Jesus Christ and worship God for his plan of redemption that he has accomplished. In Matthew 16, uh, the parallel again, um, we see that Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus looks at him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus was proclaiming here how he's going to use Peter and all of his disciples to start his church on earth. And I think it's cool to think back 2,000 years ago. The fact that this came from that is uh, an awesome thing. God's mission is still advancing. Still moving forward. And we are still faced with the same question that the disciples were asked, who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah? If so, this has massive implications, massive implications on our lives. It moves us to take our faith seriously. To be honest, I've been wrestling with this a lot, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I'm wrestling with with what I believe, but how this plays out. Because I find myself facing temptation and anger and fear, and I'm like, man, do I really believe Jesus is the Messiah? Do I approach what we're doing here just as a means to have some community and a nice life? Because when I really think about it, that would be, that would be silly because people are hard. I mean, no offense to you all, myself included. I'm hard, and if we just approach this for our gain, gosh... I have to constantly go back and remind myself that Jesus is building his church and we are just called to follow him, to obey him. And we can do nothing to mess it up because God is going to work and fulfill his purposes with or without us. So my hope is that we as a community would wrestle with this a little bit. Uh, God's provided us one another to build each other up, right? Right? To build one another up, point each other towards glorifying him. That's the eternity we're moving towards if you believe in Jesus Christ. So let's not take that for granted. We've been saved into this community to get serious about fighting sin. To not just play games with that. Be serious about loving one another. Being lights in a dark world. Dark world to make Christ's name famous. It'd be a shame to waste this opportunity. If you're here today and you're like, I'm, I'm not sure about following this, this Jesus guy, then my prayer is that you would see clearly 
who Jesus is. I pray you'd feel that, that touch on your hand and your eyes that you'd see clearly. For those who have already made this decision, remember that like Peter, you are blessed. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but God did. So you can go from here, you can lose everything, and you can still have the greatest treasure in the universe, and that is seeing and knowing him. So we're going to take time now to, uh, to take communion, and this is a good way to kind of practice the recapturing the wonder, if you will, like Mike Cosper talks about. Uh, it's a good and practical way to put your belief in Christ uh, in your wonder in him and recognize that this symbol is a serious thing that we do, right? It's not just for fun. It's not just tearing off the bread, dipping it in the cup, because that's what we do. We remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, and he shed his blood for us so that we might be reconciled to God. He did this to take away our sins and give you the greatest treasure, and that is himself. If you're here today and uh, you're not sure about communion or you don't know Jesus yet, then I would ask you to take this time to pray, reflect um, on what that means. We'll have pastors out here who would love to talk with you, pray for you. Um, So take advantage of that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, for this day. As we move into spring, as we spring forward, Lord, uh, we thank you for what you're doing Time changes, things change, Lord. You don't change, and we're thankful for that. I pray that you would help us to see you clearly, Lord. That you would help us to understand that you are the greatest treasure, the greatest thing that we can ever have in this life, and that you are worth worshiping and losing everything for. Lord God, I pray that as we walk into this time of communion that you would help us to remember what Jesus Christ did for us in his death and his resurrection Lord and pray that you would help us to never ever lose uh, the amazement of that and the awe of that and I just pray that you would help us to not forget as we go from here like we're so prone to do Lord but that uh, as we go to lunch and then move into the new work week that you would just keep us uh, in awe of you, Lord, and that we would glorify you in everything we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.